Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Mod Path Chat, the official podcast of modern pathology. Featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the Editor-in-Chief of Modern Pathology and the Chair of Pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Netto. Welcome to today's episode of ModPath Chat. This is the fourth and final episode of our special series covering this year's OSCAP long course on lung disease. I'm thrilled today to have with us Dr. Lynette Scholl, who served as one of the distinguished faculty on the long course. Dr. Scholl is an associate professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School. Uh, She's an associate pathologist at the Brigham and Women Hospital, where she serves as chief of pulmonary pathology service and the associate director of the Center for Advanced Molecular Diagnostics, a a mouthful. Thank you, Dr. Scholl, for accepting my invitation. Oh, thanks, Dr. Neto, for the invitation. It's uh, It's really thrilling to be here with you. So, uh, as, as you know, this is uh, to, to try to cover uh, the great uh, talk that you gave uh, about uh, Beyond PDL for biomarkers of uh, ICI and uh, uh, lung cancer. So, clearly, we cannot and we do not want to uh, repeat the entire talk. The idea is just to tease the audience, so uh, attract them to go and download the on-demand uh, a great talk that, that I really enjoyed attending. And, uh, and also, uh, we want to tell our audience that there will be a, an article published in the supplement issue on the long course uh, by uh, January next year, where you will discuss all the details. So let's, uh, among all these markers, let's start with TMB. What's, what's the status? Is TMB dead in lung cancer <laughs> or are you still uh, use it? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's not dead yet, as uh, Monty Python might say. Um, you know, tumor mutational burden, which of course is what TMB stands for, um, is you know I think a really very fascinating biological variable. Uh, we we see tremendous variation in the TMB from one cancer to the next when we sequence it on a daily basis, and that's true across different cancers, and that's true within lung lung cancer as well. So, I think again, as a biologic variable, it's really very cool. It's telling us something thing about the tumor that we we really can't discern from looking at, say, any one individual genetic alteration. 
um, I think the problem comes in with actually implementing it as a practical biomarker in um, in everyday clinical, you know, clinical day to day life. Uh, the FDA has approved TMB as a predictive biomarker for pembrolizumab therapy, PD-1 inhibitor in particular, and that's actually a pan-cancer indication. Uh, so, you know, regardless of what your diagnosis is, if you have a solid tumor and you have a TMB of, say, 11, uh, and you've essentially exhausted your other uh, on, you know, uh, available therapies for that particular uh, cancer type, you can go and get pembrolizumab if you haven't received it already. So... I think it offers a window of opportunity for patients who've maybe exhausted other traditional therapeutic options. And again, it's sort of, it's, it's operating under the assumption that this tumor is making more than the usual number of mutations and, and therefore is more likely to be generating neoantigens that are going hopefully to the surface of the tumor cell or getting picked up by the antigen presenting cells in the, in the environment. And it's awakening your immune system. And, mm -hmm. you know, you, you add the pembrolizumab to it to really kind of bolster that immune response. Like that sort of theoretically was supposed to happen here. I think the question really is like, what, what is a TMB of 10, right? And that is, that is where the, um, that is where the approval sits in terms of what defines high. And I think there's a lot of debate in the, um, in the scientific community and the laboratory community about really what defines a high TMB. Is 10 really high enough? And, and there's a lot of literature out there that would suggest that in many tumor types, uh, it's actually a much higher cut point than 10. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, in terms of seeing an, a signal, for instance, in lung cancer, if you just rely on TMB alone as a predictor of response to immunotherapy, you're not going to see a very strong signal. But, but, you know, if you start to begin to push that, push that TMB threshold up higher, you probably will start to see a more profound signal in terms of a prediction of response to immunotherapies. And then I think the question is, you know, let's be honest here, the vast majority of patients who have a lung cancer diagnosis are, are already getting pembrolizumab in the first line. Maybe based on their PDL one score, if it's high, they'll be getting pembrolizumab alone, or they'll be getting pembrolizumab together with chemotherapy. So you don't really need a TMB for most uh, most lung cancer patients to get them that that particular type of therapy. Um, so you know, are, are there patients? And I, you know, actually in, in in the talk, I gave an example of say lung cancer types where we don't usually think about giving Pembro in the first line setting, such as atypical carcinoids. So maybe that's a scenario where you would start to think about it if you have a high TMB. I think the other scenario is, can you identify patients who have a higher likelihood of responding to immunotherapy, even though their PDL one score is, say, very low or negative? So can it help you to parse out those folks who, it you know, you, you, know like, you had another variable that you can maybe identify those folks that you've been missing, maybe where, who are PDL one negative. So, uh, you know, I, I think as a, maybe a complementary variable uh, or complementary predictive biomarker, it, it, it holds some interesting, interesting promise. We don't have time to go through the technical part of it and the variability if you're what size of panel and all that, but that's another thing uh, that I... Yeah, that's a I very important consideration as well. So uh, let's let's go to, uh, to more uh, 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 topographic or what you call in situ markers uh, that you use. And basically it's counting CD8 positive cells or looking through IF with a spatial uh, profiling uh, the idea of uh, multiplexing and and trying to see if that's uh, you think uh, 
you think that's that's going to be uh, in the future uh, of added value? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and I, get, I think, again, the devil's in the details with these things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, the better we understand the immune milieu, I think the better we're going to become at predicting which patients are likely to, to benefit from immunotherapy. Uh, it's so complicated, though, and I'm no immunologist that I, I, you know, I struggle to kind of wrap my brain around the the complexity, uh, you know, of what we just see when we look down the scope um, and and trying to characterize these these, uh, you know, immune uh, features. Uh, you know, I think CD8 is certainly appealing because that's that's one of the effector cells that we need in order for pembrolizumab or for other, um, uh, you know, now approved immunotherapy drugs to actually work in our lung cancer patients. But but it's becoming increasingly clear that that's probably not enough. Um, uh, you know, as I discussed in the talk, it looks like CD4 cells are actually really important, too, in sort of orchestrating uh, some of these responses. Uh, NK cells are important. You know, there may be some evidence that the macrophages actually are better in, you know, pdl one expression on macrophages is a better indicator of response, maybe even than expression on the tumor cells. Um, so, so, yeah, I think I think capturing the this information with a with a multiplexed approach a, a more standardized multiplexed approach um recording it uh benchmarking against uh lung cancer populations i think the challenge we face now is like what do you do what what is high cd8 right like what number do you put on there or you know how many do you need to call it high and all of us are probably operating with a different set of thresholds and the same for all the other immune markers as well uh it's it's not quite as straightforward as is it brown or or not right <laughs> we actually have right. to actually have to quantitate these things and and what about the sample type you know what if all you have is a pleural fluid or you know what if all you have is an fna of a lymph node uh, you know, how do you apply how do you apply this type of, of technology in that in that context? And so, you know, there's limitation. There's most certainly limitations to it. Um, you know, we you know, in our own institution, we uh, we're offering multiplex immunofluorescence testing largely as a uh, as part of a consented uh, protocol, institutional protocol. So the patients will consent to this type of testing and uh, and we'll run it and generate a report that the clinicians can actually view um, and they're they're welcome to report the results back to the patients although at this point we have a limited ability to know how people will actually use that information and and I think again in terms of the technical challenges uh, right now our ability to multiplex is is somewhat limited right so we're not able to capture every single different type of immune cell in the environment right. we're, we're kind of limited to five or six markers um, so and what, what you're doing six yeah so that's what we do it's you know multiplex. yeah exactly um, so I, I, I think I think you know from the standpoint of standardizing our ability to quantify pdl1 say on the tumor cells or on the immune cells I think that a multiplexing approach and, and a multiplex immunofluorescence approaches holds incredible promise because I think we'll just, we can only get better <laughs> as far right. as I'm concerned at the way we're scoring these tumors, so the PDL1 status. Uh, and I think this can help tremendously in that regard. And then we'll just have to see how much more information we can extract routinely from the standard clinical specimens that we get uh, in practice for our lung cancer patients. 
rather than eyeballing. So what you're talking yeah. about is adding the digital aspect. Yeah. You touch upon uh, the good correlation between the digital computational counts uh, versus uh, eyeballing. And, and so that's probably would increase the inter-observer and the accuracy. So, yeah. but back to, I'm, I'm intrigued by what you mentioned that you do, you offer this test. Uh, so it's actionable for the clinicians or you're just at the phase of collecting data? Well, you know, it, it, you know, it's it sort of interestingly straddles this um, this sort of research and clinical um, type of assay because you know, really, the minute you put this information back into the clinician's hands, you you can't stop them from acting on it. And you know, I think again, it's a lot of it's just very much informational because um, they 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 already probably got a PDL one IHC stain on their lung cancer patients because we do that reflexively for everybody. Um, so, you know, to some extent, we open ourselves up to additional criticism, right? Because they've already gotten an I, a, a brown, a quote unquote brown stain IHC for PDL one, and then we're going to generate a separate multiflex immunofluorescence result, which may be slightly different than what Correct. was seen on IHC. So, yeah. we've had a couple of these scenarios where you know maybe one was was PDL one low and one was PDL one high, and and we have to figure out how to address that. And part of that can be driven. By the fact that you you know you tested a different block or you tested a different spell you know obvious things like that. So, sometimes it's it's because uh, and I mentioned this in my talk as well. It can be utilizing a, a scoring of the entire slide versus scoring just regions of interest. And and I, and I and again I mentioned in, in my talk that there's very practical limitations to implementing multiplex immunofluorescence that relate just to computational power. Um, so you got to find a place to store these images and a whole slide image that is a six plex, um, you know, immunofluorescence, that's a pretty massive image. So this is possible infrastructure. This is big kind of computational infrastructure that you need to invest in in order to support this type of work. You don't really need that for a brown stain because you just stick it in a file. So you need a, you need a drawer, right? <laughs> a little different. But, uh, but it's, uh, it's definitely... Uh, some exciting potential for for growth uh, and and finding better better quantitation. So yeah, so hopefully yeah. that will work out. Yeah. Uh, let's finish. Then uh, we, we have time probably to talk about one of the genomic markers that uh, probably can come in play also as a biomarker here. Do you wanna share? Yeah, yeah, sure. I think you know. I I guess I would just mention. I think SDK eleven because. I think it's the it's 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 sort of the the trendy genomic predictor that you hear about. You you often hear your clinician colleagues talking about what's their SDK eleven status. Maybe they won't respond to immunotherapy because they've got this SDK eleven mutation. Um, so you know the kind of the backstory on that is is that patients who are smokers and have lung cancers, in particular adenocarcinomas, have a have a pretty high rate of SDK eleven mutations. I and and I have to say off the top of my head, I think it's probably somewhere on the order of fifteen or twenty percent of the time in that kind of clinical context, you're going to find mm -hmm. an, an SDK11 mutation. And, and they're, 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 they're very, very high sort of likelihood of being uh, loss of function mutations. And that's, uh, they may be premature truncated mutations, or they may be a missense mutation that affects the function. This is a, this is a, you know, has a tumor for suppressor function. So uh, if you have a truncating mutation that manifests as loss of protein by IHC, so that's something we can easily study um, using routine clinical, you know, routine clinical IHC uh, analytes. So, so it's information that we can generate without too much trouble. Um, and, and again, it's fairly common in lung cancer patients. And, and what we've seen from um, 
uh, a number of largely retrospective studies is that the the loss of SDK11 expression seems to predict a relatively poor response to immunotherapy. And that's both uh, immunotherapy, monotherapy, as well as in combination with chemotherapy. There have been a couple of efforts, I think, to um, begin to confirm that in prospective clinical trials, and and they they haven't really panned out. Slash, they haven't really been published yet. So I, I think I think we'll probably continue to see this space evolve. Right now, you know, and we've had conversations. Well, should we be routinely doing SDK eleven? Uh, IHC and patients who for whom they're thinking about doing immunotherapy. Um, and we've never really uh, we've never really, uh, you know, bitten the bullet and, and, and done that um, in part because we do offer next gen testing in house that will generate the SDK 11 mutational status. The answer there. And, and I think in part, uh, you know, these patients are going to get immunotherapy anyway. Right. Uh, what What is the alternative? Uh, you could give them chemo alone. But if in, unless the SDK 11 mutation actually predicts they're going to do worse, like then they would with chemo alone. I think it makes it hard. It's not a strong enough negative predictor to actually, I think, force people away from um, from giving immunotherapy in the first line setting again with or without uh, with or without chemotherapy. So. Uh, I think it's important to be aware of it as a potential predictive biomarker. It's something that comes up in tumor board conversations, not infrequently, but I think at this point, it's not actually changing the way the medical oncologists are choosing to uh, start therapy. Well, hopefully the other markers, I know you mentioned KEEP1 and, and others. So uh, this is fascinating. And uh, I, uh, I encourage everyone to go and, and listen to the entire talk and learn even more. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and thank you, for, by the way, for all the help you offer us uh, uh, for the journal in terms of uh, uh, contributing your articles and helping reviews. Uh, and I look forward uh, to the article and the supplement on your talk. It's been a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you for all your support. And um, it's been wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of modern pathology, Springer Nature, UAB, or USCAP. Your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Netto. Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions, music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible.